What if there was a list? A list that said our finest actors weren't allowed to act. Our best writers weren't allowed to write. Our funniest comedians weren't allowed to make us laugh. What would this country be like if there was such a list? It would be like America in 1953. A New York cashier of no fixed ambition finds himself at the forefront of one of the most shameful chapters of American history when he begins submitting television scripts on behalf of his friend, a blacklisted screenwriter. What looks like easy money soon gives way to a moral quandary as our hero is drawn deeper into an unexpected test of character and loyalty in a film that attempts to show just what un-American activities really look like. <laughs> That's such a great summary. Uh, welcome to Cinema Gadfly. I'm your host, Eric Devins, and with me is my guest, West Anthony. Say hello, West. Hello, everybody. Thanks for coming back to, to talk about this film. Uh, so it's uh, it's called The Front, by the way. I don't think we, we did say that, although it's on the title so of the episode, so you probably all already know that. Uh, West, why did you choose this film for me to watch? Uh, this is a film that is very near and dear to my heart uh, in general. But in particular... Uh, I recently, uh, when I was at uh, WonderCon here in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago, I chanced to meet uh, an, an audiobook director named uh, Gabrielle DeCure, and she mentioned that she had done, uh, she had directed a, a complete unabridged recording of a book by Eric Bentley called 30 Years of Treason which is a book I have right here, I'm holding it in my hand right now and Eric Bentley basically took and edited together a bunch of transcripts of hearings from the House Un-American Activities Committee from the late 30s to the late 60s. Uh, and it's a book that is uh, just profoundly important to me. Uh, I am the, I'm sort of a blacklist buff, if uh, that's the proper terminology for such a thing. It's been a minor obsession of mine for many, many years now, and it's something that I feel like we definitely don't talk about very much at all we certainly don't talk about it enough and uh when i heard that uh, there was an unabridged audiobook version of this that was done by you know a cast of uh of voice actors uh i just thought wow i, I gotta hear this and listening to it as opposed to reading just reading the words on the page is one thing but then when you hear these people acting this stuff out and you hear these these people people that you might be familiar with like Lillian Hellman or Lionel Stander or Paul Robeson or Zero Mostel being basically hounded and browbeaten by a bunch of miserable, whining, hypocritical, political scumbags. It just gets my blood boiling every time I think about it. And just the, the dramatization of it, it actually just sort of amplified those feelings for me. And then, you know, when the, the opportunity for, for this uh, uh, podcast appearance came along, I would just, it, it was just at the forefront of my mind. And I thought, oh, we're talking about the front. <laughs> that's, that is, that's an excellent reason. Uh, and, you know, anytime, you know, people feel passionate about things, they want to talk about it. That's like the best, right? Um, uh, I have to say that when I, when you first suggested this film which i'd never seen although i do uh love the director uh, martin ritt and in fact uh i think the third episode of this podcast was another one of his films um the spy who came in from the cold um i was initially very nervous about watching the film because i have trouble watching woody allen oh um yeah i'm i'm definitely in a an unusual group 
on that one. Uh, my issue there is not that he's not brilliant or talented. It's just that he's so painfully stereotypically Jewish uh, <laughs> <laughs> that it's actually somewhat difficult for me to to watch him. Um, at, at, you know, as a Jewish man in America, I, I just um, uh, he's like. He's like everything that I, I maybe have been rebelling against, like you know, my entire life uh, in terms of uh, perception uh, from from mainstream America into myself. Um, he's he's great in this film, though, and I I think it's um, interesting because I don't know if I've ever seen a film. I, I'm sure I have, but I can't think of another film I've seen where he was in it, but wasn't it wasn't his film. Right. Yeah, he was in a film in the, I don't know, I can't remember if it was the late 80s, I'm pretty sure it was the late 80s, called uh, Scenes from a Mall. It was with him and, and Bette Midler, which was written and directed by Paul Mazursky. And not only did did he not write or direct it, but Mazursky actually got him out to Los Angeles to be in it. Wow. Yeah. It was basically unheard of, right? Pretty much. He hates <laughs> it here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, no, he's he's really good. I, so, I, you know, I, I'm not going to say that I loved this film, but I definitely liked it. Um, and and uh, and there were a lot of reasons for that, not the least of which is that I uh, am a huge Zero Mostel fan who is uh, is wonderful in this film. Yeah, Zero Mostel is, is fantastic. And he's a guy that I've known about since, like, early childhood because uh, when I was just, just like a wee lad, as it were, uh, from amongst my father's record collection, he would always play me and my brother and sister. He would always play us the the Broadway soundtrack for Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> so I had this familiarity with Zero Mostel that just goes back decades for me. And so I've and I've always loved that recording. You know, I have a copy of it myself now. And then you know you get to see him. Uh, in films like A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, or uh, earlier in the, the early 1950s, he had a supporting role in an Elia Kazan film called Panic in the Streets, which was made just before he himself was blacklisted. Uh, so, yeah, I, I've been familiar with him for a long time. And then to see him in this movie doing what he does uh, in this film, which is, I, I think, very unlike a lot of his other performances... I found that it just, uh, it, I think it's a very, uh, an incredibly uh, moving and touching performance. Yeah, so uh, you and I share that same story about Fiddler on the Roof, although mine is slightly maybe more predictable. But my mom um, grew up uh, in New York, um, and uh, every year her uh, birthday present from her parents was to go to a, a musical, and part of the deal was that she would also get the, the cast album. So at my house growing up, my mom had... They, my parents still have all their records and a rec working record player and all this stuff. So they had, she had like every musical from like the early to mid sixties and I was obsessed with them. So I used to put on a uh, fiddler on the roof, you know, constantly all the time. Uh, it, it definitely also where I first encountered zero must as, as a young person, but yeah, I completely agree. His portrayal in this movie is, is, is very different than something like fiddler or the form of the other, the other films you mentioned and is, really almost heartbreakingly touching yeah um especially you know the way that his character's plot plays out in the film um which i found to be i i actually um i was watching the film uh, digitally and i actually backed up and watched that like two or three times um just that moment which i thought was wonderfully done um yeah it's where... very it's very tragic but it's, all, it's also handled with a great deal of of taste and subtlety which i really appreciated yeah exactly um so 
uh, I, I don't know if we want to. Do you want to? Do you want to talk about what we're talking about? Yeah. Well, I mean, his his character, uh, uh, sort of a comic actor performer named Hecky Brown, is under pressure to uh, to basically squeal and name names to the House on American Activities Committee. And, you know, he tries to cooperate as best he can, which is exactly what Zero Mostel himself tried to do. He tried to basically give them what they want without compromising his own beliefs, and which, of course, means basically you can't give them what they want because that's all they want is for you to compromise your beliefs and kowtow to, to, their, to their, their, uh, their, their beliefs and, and their power, as it were. Um, and he finds himself increasingly unable to, uh, to, to work and to, to, to make money for his family, and he just falls into despondency, and eventually he commits suicide. And that suicide itself is based on uh, uh, another performer that he was friends with back in the day who was similarly blacklisted. And the guy couldn't get work for love or money, and he just wound up killing himself. A lot of the stuff that happens in this film is based on real incidents and real people. You know, the, the screenplay was written by Walter Bernstein, who himself was blacklisted. And that, that, that's one of the things, in fact, it, it's really weird to say. I know it sound, it's going to sound weird when I say it, but this is a, a, a film, this may be the only film I've ever seen where the end credits move me to tears. Because one I, of the yeah. things they point out is that, you know, it, it tells you right there, Martin Ritt, the director, blacklisted. Walter Bernstein, the screenwriter, blacklisted zero mostel blacklisted herschel bernardi the character the, the actor who plays the uh the, the the tv show producer and he was also the voice of charlie the tuna and the the, the sun starkist uh, tuna commercials blacklisted huh. lloyd guff blacklisted There's, you know and not only that but also i mean i'm gonna go deep 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 trivia now the um the actress who plays the uh, the waitress in the the bar and restaurant where woody allen works uh-huh. that's julie garfield she is the daughter of John Garfield, a man who himself died of a heart attack at the age of 39. I mean, he had a weak heart all his life, but he was under so much pressure to kowtow to the House on American Activities. I mean, Julie Garfield always asserted, as many uh, Hollywood uh, actors, fellow actors did, that, that the pressure from HUAC killed John Garfield. She is in this movie. The credits moved me as well. It's absolutely you 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 put it just right it's like <laughs> credits are not usually of any interest right except like oh that's you know oh that's who was in it but this one was like oh my god because they put the name and then they put the year that they were blacklisted yeah uh, next and, to it and it's it's tragic enough that that happened but then also you know i feel a swell of emotion because look they made it past that and they were able to continue on. They were able to live their lives and do work with dignity, with their heads held high. They were able to break that blacklist. And now we have this movie because of those people, because of the things that they lived through, that they put on screen for you and I to look at and to appreciate and to admire. I mean, I find that tremendously moving. Yeah, that's an, that's also an excellent, excellent point. Um, just uh, uh, to take one minute, just in case anyone's listening to this podcast has made it this far and doesn't know what the blacklist is and hasn't looked it up. Um, do you want to give a little bit of background as to what we're talking about? Yeah. Well, the house on American activities committee was basically just a bunch of schmucks in Washington who were supposedly fighting communist subversion and communist infiltration. And uh, of course the uh, legendary communist plot to sap and purify all our precious bodily fluids. I had to go there. <laughs> I had to go there. Um, and they, 
they had set their sights upon the entertainment industry as far back as the late 1930s when they called uh, Hallie Flanagan, who was the director of the um, one of the many uh, programs that the uh, that the New Deal uh, Roosevelt administration had put into to uh, into play was that there was a theater program. And Hallie Flanagan was the woman who was in charge of that back in the 1930s. You know, it was she was the person who, you know, helped, uh, you know, she she gave uh, uh, Orson Welles work. You know, he did uh, that whole uh, Voodoo Macbeth, the legendary Voodoo Macbeth performance under their auspices. Uh, and, of course, there's the, the legendary uh, musical the, the Cradle Will Rock by Mark Blitzstein, which ended up not even being, uh, it didn't even get to run on 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 broadway although they sort of did a uh, a sort of clandestine performance of it which was all dramatized in a really wonderful tim robbins film from 1999 called cradle will rock which i recommend to everybody it's a wonderful film um but particularly they they sort of started ramping things up in the 1940s and 50s they set their sights on hollywood and they started uh calling in people actors writers directors who they had heard or there were rumors or maybe they had some definitive proof that they were communists or they were communist influenced. I mean, and look, I'm not going to lie and say that oh, there's no such thing or that it was a myth. There were definitely some people in the Hollywood community who were card carrying communists. But uh, to my way of thinking, that was never, ever going to be a big problem for the United States. You know, I, I never believed for a minute yeah, that there was ever any chance that the Communist Party was somehow going to overthrow the United States. No, really, what a lot of these people were doing, they were just liberals who sort of fell in with the Communist Party because at the time there was World War II and they were fighting the fascists. They were fighting the Axis powers. And during that time, yeah, guess what? Russia was our ally. And so they didn't think it was that bad a, a thing to join up with the Communist Party, who wanted to agitate for, uh, you know, better living wages and rights for workers and for minorities and for women. All the things that liberals are standing up for today, you know, that's they these people felt that the Communist Party was a way for them, was a venue for them to support those things and enact that kind of change. So, you know. People calling themselves a communist is just is never a big deal for me. Never a big deal. But to to Washington, yes, it was a huge deal because especially in, after World War II was over, you had this big red scare going on, and then of course, which led to the Cold War, and so you had to worry about communists being under every bed. And you know, uh, and we started the space program because you know, Johnson didn't want to you know, sleep by the light of a communist moon was his stupid quote. Um, <laughs> all this stuff, and and it just turned into a witch hunt. You know, there was a, a publication put out by this right wing organization. It was a publication called Red Channels, where they basically just called all these people out. Uh, they just printed the names of people that they said were communists, who were subversive commies and, and pinkos working in, in the entertainment industry. And these people then had to clear their names. And for some reason or other, even though the, the House on American Activities Committee had all this proof. They had plenty of people, FBI agents, infiltrating all these meetings and gathering all this information. They wanted you, as a Hollywood person, to come to them and sit in the chair and name names. They wanted you to say, this person I worked with is a communist. This person was a communist. That person was a communist. And that was the only way you were going to get off this unofficial blacklist that was created by the cowardice of the Hollywood studio uh owners 
who basically got together at the Waldorf Hotel, hotel and they just had this unofficial pact, because it could never be official, because, you know, legally, you're not supposed to be able to deny somebody employment due to their political affiliation. But the blacklist was that it, it was a thing that carried on regardless. It was a whole under-the-table clandestine operation. And many people lost their livelihoods. You know, of course, the, the, the one that might be freshest in people's minds is The Hollywood Ten, because last year there was a very good movie called Trumbo, which starred uh, Brian Cranston as Dalton Trumbo, one of the Hollywood Ten. These ten guys who were directors, producers, screenwriters, who refused to cooperate with the House on American Activities Committee and went to jail. They were imprisoned for a year of their lives. And, and when they got out, they were unable to find work. So this is a very real thing that happened in the United States. And who's to say that it is not a thing that could happen again? Oh, it's absolutely, absolutely a thing that could happen again. Uh, definitely. I don't think that that's changed in any way uh, at all. And, um, I, and I think that a, a lot of the motives, I mean, maybe there were some, you know, poor saps in Washington who genuinely believed that they had to stamp out communism. But I really think that in a lot of instances, a lot of this stuff could be chalked up to some of it could be chalked up. also, I think to jealousy, jealousy of Hollywood people, you know, there's many people have commented today that Washington is Hollywood for ugly people. And I think, <laughs> and I think there's very much something to be said, said for that. I think there's a lot of truth in that. And I think that there's, there is an indicator as to why, these politicians had to bring Hollywood to its knees. I think there's there's maybe a certain degree of professional jealousy there, but I also think that a large part of it had to do with racism because many of these people, many of the, the writers and directors and producers and some of the actors, John Garfield was Jewish. There were plenty of, I think there was a lot of anti-Semitism. There was also, uh, you know, some racism against, uh, uh, against uh, black people. I mean, Paul Robeson was a guy who was called in front of the committee and he was very... He was very uncooperative. In fact, that's one of one of the highlights of 30 Years of Treason is his testimony because he just does not give a damn. And there was a very telling exchange between him and the chairman. Uh, and I'm going to read it to you right now. It's just a very brief thing here where Mr. Robeson is trying to find out who this person is. And he says to them, he says to the chairman, oh, you are the author of all the bills that are going to keep all kinds of decent people out of the country. To which the chairman replies, no, only your kind. Oh, Wow. wow. And okay, yes, you could make the argument that by your kind, he's only referring to, to communists. But yeah. who are we kidding? Minorities in this country have heard such uh, terms as your kind and know exactly what that is loaded with for hundreds of years. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I mean, they, you know, they took Paul Robeson's passport away for 10 years. Yep. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is people, this is. This, you know, this is a part of, of our history that I, and by our, I mean this country's history that I think is in too many ways forgotten. Yeah. Uh, this is, and it's not, it's not a funny, you know, it's not a joke. And it's a this thing movie that, is funny, but it's not a funny joke. Well, and, and the movie isn't even that funny. I mean, there is some humor in it. I mean, it, you, it yeah. can't, you can't avoid humor with Woody Allen around. I mean, Woody Allen is being Woody Allen and he does that very well. And it's funny, but as the movie goes on and it takes a darker and darker tone, the humor just sort of, just sort of evaporates. Yeah, it's true. I think the movie does a phenomenal job of uh, showing exactly what you alluded to or not alluded to downright said, which is that um, the goal here was not to find out who these people uh, these supposed communists were because they already knew. The point was 
to get them to look cooperative and basically bless them with the power that they wanted to have to be able to get you to uh, you know incriminate uh, other folks uh, when when your name was called. They already knew who those folks were in the movie. You know they're they're they're, they're saying oh just give us this name of this dead guy. Right? Yeah. It won't even, which is Zero Mostel's character after he's died. But it's like they they don't even care who it is. You just have to look cooperative. You just have to allow. You have to bless their power grab, um, which uh, you know is so corrupt and and horrible. But I mean, the movie I thought did a a, a really good job of of showing that, and also of kind of explaining that yeah, some of these people were actually communists for whatever that means. A lot of these people were, as you pointed out, just people who had uh, been uh interested in 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 communism during a very different time period uh the the you know the time period of world war 2 when it was and a little bit before when it was like fashionable to be um if you were liberal to be sort of communist or communist leaning or whatever before kind of um the cold war had started or we weren't allies with russia or we were aware more of what the communism in the soviet union actually looked like and whether or not it was communism you'd really want to support and how do you separate that from the ideals and things? But like, you know, the the movie packs all of these things, which are pretty complicated issues into its plot. in I think a very, very streamlined way that kind of tells the story that needs to be told without, without kind of uh, losing folks by, uh, by, by overburdening it. Yeah. I think this Walter Bernstein, I think did a really good job as the screenwriter of sort of giving you an, a, a taste of, what the atmosphere was like in America in the early 50s. But also I think that the the screenplay is really streamlined. It doesn't do anything more than it has to do. I mean, it's a tight 90 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. It, it gets in, in in everything it needs to get in. It tells the story it needs to tell, and it doesn't really dawdle. Yeah. And and Martin Ritt's direction, I think, is is solid throughout. The, the movie is just it's just very straightforward. I mean, it's certainly there is there's opportunity for humor and there's opportunity for pathos and tragedy and so forth. But I think it's all handled so well, and particularly the the sort of shifts in tone as particularly as the story goes along. It's something that it, it in the wrong hands it could kind of all blow up in your face. But I don't think it ever steps wrong. Yeah, no, definitely. It's definitely a a, t- a tightrope act where you could overburden it on one side or the other. It could get too much of like the kooky Woody Allen not telling the woman he's dating the truth type of story, or it could be too much the uh, you know we know what they don't know audience manipulation story. There's a lot of different ways it could go wrong, and I I, I agree with you. It, it walks that path pretty straight to to the goal that it's trying to tell, and I think. Uh, you know, my Im- imagination, I don't know this, would be that this was, you know, really a labor of of passion for these people because they were telling a story that, that was so personal and familiar to them that um, that's probably why there was no temptation to kind of uh, gussy it up with uh, with dramatics that way and why they kind of played it, played it very straight. Yeah, exactly. I don't think this story could have been told as well in other people's hands. Uh, in fact... In contrast, there's a film from the early 90s that you could look at called Guilty by Suspicion, which was directed by Erwin Winkler, and it starred uh, Robert De Niro as a Hollywood director who is being hounded by the House on American Activities Committee. And it's um, there's, there's a lot more melodrama to that, to that film than there is in the front. Um, it's my understanding that Abraham Polanski 
who was himself uh, another blacklisted writer-director. Uh, he actually wrote and directed one of my all-time favorite films and one of my favorite film noirs, uh, Force of Evil, which stars John Garfield. Uh, Abraham Polanski had a hand in writing uh, Guilty by Suspicion, but then you know it was taken out of his hands and sort of go, started going in a direction that he did not approve of, and that is why his name is not on that picture at all. It's a good film, but... Uh, it it doesn't feel nearly as authentic, and I don't think it has nearly the uh, the 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 gravitas and the punch that the front has. Interesting. I haven't seen it. I remember seeing the at the time that it came out. I remember seeing the posters and stuff, but I haven't actually seen it. Um, but yeah, I, I can't imagine it would. I, I don't know Robert De Niro and Annette Bening. I don't know if it would be quite the the same level. Um, it's not the same. Uh, court people often confuse the Hollywood blacklist with the House on American, or often confuse the House on American with McCarthyism or with McCarthy himself, and they were only similar but not actually related. But I thought that Good Night and Good Luck is a better modern movie for at least that story. Did Did you enjoy that one? Yeah, I love that movie. Yeah, that's great. It's yeah. really great. That was another one that uh, I really feel was very. Uh, very well handled, and, and and also because I think that that's something that is very near and dear to George Clooney's heart. So right. I think that he was able to. He, it was something that was very important to him, so he was able to handle it in just the right way. Yeah, I think that's what's uh, what's so important because it, it wasn't his dad was like a television journalist who was kind of part of that crew, right? Yeah, Nick Clooney. Nick Clooney. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I think uh, again, you know, those two things are tangentially related but it i think that's the main thing is it can't be it can't be sensationalist it can't be an attempt to just tell a rollicking good story you know and, and make the most of a of a of a, of a thing it has to be really like a, a passion a, a a memory almost for someone yeah and yeah. you'll notice also i mean as we, we've talked about what two movies revolving around the the, the blacklist uh period and and people who would affect it well three if you count trumbo uh, which i mentioned and that's almost it for hollywood as far as talking about this thing that happened to so many of them in their industry it's just i think that it continues to be an incredibly touchy subject for hollywood because there were a lot of people who did roll over they did name names they did talk and they they had their own reasons. A lot of them just, you know, they just wanted to get their career back. They just wanted to go on acting or writing or directing or what have you. Uh, maybe some of them had th- those those goofball beliefs that uh, communists were bad. I know Adolf Manju was uh, a very cooperative witness. He was just, uh, he, he had no qualms about it. He, he hated communists. So, okay, fine. Good for you, buddy. But, um, <laughs> but then you have people like uh, the aforementioned uh, Elia Kazan, who directed Zero Mostel in uh, Panic in the Streets in 1950, 51, 52, somewhere around there. And then he was called in front of the committee, and he named names. And right. he's remained pretty pretty unapologetic about it all the way to the end of his life. You know, it didn't bother him at all. That, And it certainly bothered some, some other people. I mean, many, many years later, I still remember vividly when they, they the Academy Awards, they, they gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award. And they brought him up on stage, and there were definitely some people in the audience that were just sitting on their hands. They had no intention of applauding for that man. It's fascinating because he made, you know, On the Waterfront. Yeah, which, you know, if you look closely at the circumstances of his life and Bud Schulberg, the screenwriter, if you look closely at the circumstances of their life at that time, 
you can see that on the waterfront basically is their justification for naming names. Yeah, that's what I think too. You know, and it's just it's just that and the the, the, the sickening hypocrisy of it is that they they take the character of Terry Malloy who, you know, the, the character is not a successful actor or writer or director. He's just this palooka who wants to work down at the docks and he's fighting with this this crime syndicate led by Lee J Cobb who himself testified in in front of the House on American Activities Committee. You know, there's a lot of people, a lot of people got called up in front of those cats. And uh, to to say that Elia Kazan is is the equal of a simple-minded palooka and that the uh, the the communist party or or whoever is uh, the same as a syndicate of gangsters who go around uh, murdering people who don't do what they tell you uh, is at best wildly disingenuous. <laughs> yeah, at best. Yeah. So I mean, there's yeah. there's a lot of fine performances in that movie and great uh, great cinematography. It's the only film that Leonard Bernstein ever wrote a score for. Uh, and and yes, uh, Marlon Brando is memorable. Lee J. Cobb, uh, Carl Malden, Eva Marie Saint—they're all just wonderful performances in that movie. But make no mistake about it, that's uh, Elia Kazan basically justifying what he did. Yeah. And I, unfortunately, I, I know there are some people who don't let it go, and I am one of them. <laughs> no, I I think that's I, I think yeah, absolutely. And I think your point about Hollywood is well taken because you know if there's one thing Hollywood absolutely loves to do it's to talk about itself in movies like they are as obsessed with themselves as anyone could ever possibly be and the fact that they are as silent on this as they are is i think extraordinarily telling Uh right they always want to talk about the machinery of hollywood the reality of hollywood there's so many movies that are just hollywood congratulating or discussing or thinking or or mythologizing or whatever hollywood and and this is a particular area where they've mostly stayed silent yeah and and really one of the 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 grandest statements about that era that I've ever seen in a Hollywood movie just came earlier this year in the Coen Brothers film Hail Caesar. Have you seen it? Not yet. I am so excited to see okay. it. Okay. Well, I'm not going to give it away, but I will just say that the way they sort of skewered the Red Scare, and that's just one plot point among several in this movie, right. uh, I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I'm sure they did it brilliantly. They are the best, right? But... Yeah, yeah. Uh, some people have dismissed that film as like, you know, second or third tier Coen Brothers, but I don't know. Uh, I loved it, and even if it was second tier Coen Brothers, that's better than first tier Michael Bay or whoever the hell. <laughs> that's, that is uh, hundreds of levels better than first tier Michael Bay. I don't even, <laughs> I don't even know what first tier, oh my God. Yeah, there's more value in Hail Caesar than Michael Bay's entire career. Just exactly. forget about it. <laughs> the entire over is, is, yeah, exactly. Um I wanted to ask you a question uh, about this film. Um, one of the things that I was struck by is that the, this film is from the uh, 1970s, right? It's uh, I think it's from 76. Like 76, exactly. Um, do you think that there's any amount of commentary, that this is in any way a commentary on sort of the, the hatred that the Nixon era had for political subversion, uh, a commentary on sort of the things that were happening in the 70s. Do you think any of that was in their heads, or is it purely just we're looking back at the 50s and 40s and that's it's disconnected to, to what's happening now? Well, I, I very much believe that this film probably might not have come about if it hadn't come about in the wake of the Watergate scandal. 
Right. Everything that the way that whole administration fell apart, the way the Nixon administration probably did more than any other presidential administration in my lifetime, at least to make Americans distrust their leaders. Uh, you know, this it's it can't be underestimated. And yeah, that led to the whole thing in the 1970s. It led to the whole era of paranoid cinema. In the 1970s, that was a whole sort of subgenre of of American film in that era, where you had all these films about people who were just paranoid that that, that people were out to get them, and you know, films like uh, the Day of the Day of the Condor, no, no, Three mm-hmm. Days of the Condor, Three, Three Days of the Condor, and uh, uh, Clute, and The mm-hmm. Parallax View, and then of course you had All the President's Men, which was the true story that led to those paranoid feelings, and then these folks come along and say, well. Just because you're paranoid, it's not to say that they aren't out to get you. Here is what happened. Here is here's a situation where people really were out to get you. So I think that this, actually, the front fits in with that whole strain of paranoid 70s cinema that we had back then. Yeah, I had never heard of this film until you, uh, you know, asked me to, to watch it, and I, I completely agree with you. And it, 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 it has really added to my understanding of kind of what was kind of going on uh, in cinema at that time, and to me, it certainly it felt very strongly like it was, you know, certainly telling the story it was telling, and as we've discussed, like very personal story to the people involved. But I would almost say, like, you know, they they I could imagine, you know, them seeing what was happening or what had just happened at that time and going, okay, yeah, uh, we don't want that kind of thing to happen again. Now is the time where we have to remind people of what happened so that it doesn't happen again, so that we don't, you know. And so that so we can protect people exactly and yeah. i think that they did a really good job of it and it's just yeah. it's a shame that the film is largely forgotten today and so i think it's it's a, as good a reason as any to to bring it up now and again especially now because the the, the direction that uh, that i fear we might be headed in uh it could send us right back down that hole oh absolutely there's no question about it that that we are once again at a time period where you could see people defining lists of what we, we are seeing people defining lists right of what it what it means and doesn't mean to be american and patriotic and uh, you know what what you have to believe and, and to be considered good or or, or you know uh, by these people and, and this kind of stuff and, and you know we're not at the point there's no government you know hearings right now but it's not that big of a stretch by any means yeah so it really depends so this is a film that uh, you know it unfortunately it remains timely and I think that uh, you can get a lot out of watching it. Whether what, what, wherever your political sympathies lie, at the very least, you know it is uh, an entertaining and a thought-provoking comedy slash drama. There's great performances in there. There's some some fine writing and some fine directing. I think you said it very well when you said, "Unfortunately, it's very timely." But um, that is unfortunate. It would be much nicer if we were saying this as purely as a, "Oh, look at this oddity from history! Isn't that great?" Yeah. But um, I, I totally agree with you, and uh, I also agree that with what you said about just uh, something for everyone and, and a reason to watch it. I, I'm um, very glad that uh, that you brought this film to my attention. Um, I also find it interesting, just as a final aside, that. Um, one of the major plot points in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, which is another Martin Ritt film, as I mentioned earlier, is that this character is a communist and uh, what she says about communism in the film and how she's treated by her, her boyfriend. Uh, it's just kind of funny to think about that that's the same same guy. Yeah, yeah. I, I hadn't even thought about that. I forgot all about it. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. It's a great film. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 
Cool. Um, well, was there anything else on this one you wanted to talk about? No, nope. Uh, I I let fly with a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you did, but it was great. I, I think maybe everybody's had enough. It's time to go to bed. <laughs> All right. Well, before we do that, why don't you let them know, you know, what you've been up to and where they can find you and stuff like that. Uh, I am the host of uh, the podcast Musical Notation, uh, which is a weekly podcast that covers uh, music uh, in film, all kinds of music that is uh, that can be found in movies. Uh, you can find that at BattleshipRetention.com, where I am part of the Battleship Retention podcast fleet. You can also find it on iTunes or Stitcher. Uh, you can follow that show on Twitter at NotationPod, and you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. West Anthony. And as I said uh, on the last episode, if you're not listening to Musical Notation, um, I don't know if I still want to be friends with you. No, I'm just kidding. But it is <laughs> phenomenal. It is, uh, it, is, it is a podcast. There's only a couple podcasts where uh, when, when they have a new release day, I don't care if I'm in the middle of another thing. I don't care you know, what, what I'm doing. That's the next thing I'm going to listen to because I just know I'm going to love it. Uh, the episodes are short, which is to my mind, ideal. Uh, I don't think there's been an episode longer than about 30 minutes, and, and that was only uh, when you did all of the uh, nominated scores for the for the Oscars. Uh, it's a really nice length, typically about 15, 20 minutes. Uh, makes his, his points, uh, plays you something you haven't heard, or maybe you have heard, but get to hear again, and it's it, it, it's just wonderful. So, it, you know, if you are a fan of this show, there's I just don't believe you're not going to love uh, uh, musical notation. So please, please, please go and check it out. Um, you can learn more about this show uh, at cinemagadfly.com or cinemagadfly on Twitter. And we'll, we'll be back next month with a totally different guest and two totally new movies. So until then, uh, good night. And furthermore, you can all go fuck yourselves. Fairy tales can come true, it can happen to you.